Capital Market Insights from ICMA. So good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for um, a monthly market update uh, from uh, AMI, the Asset Management and Investor Council of ICMA. I'm joined again by uh, Bob Parker, advisor to uh, ICMA and AMIC, uh, to decipher the recent uh, market events. Bob, thanks uh, for being with us, and uh, let's uh, jump straight in uh, into what's uh, concerning uh, for investors, um, the, uh, namely the central bank uh, policy decision uh, and, and precisely the, the Fed. Um, I think the big uh, difference since we last spoke is we now anticipate uh, Fed uh, ra- raising rates, uh, I guess, uh, in a more speedy way than uh, originally anticipated, uh, which has uh, spooked uh, a certain part of the, the, the equity market and uh, also uh, uh, the bond market. So what is happening uh, with the Fed right now? Can you help us a bit understand uh, why such a drastic change in um, uh, behavior of markets? What, what has been the main uh, news that explain what the uh, what's going on today. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. There has been a a major change in the investor consensus as to uh, the potential policy actions uh, by the Fed. Um, If we had had this discussion, say, last September 2021, then there was a very clear consensus that the Fed would reduce its quantitative easing program um, during the first half of 2022, Uh, and end the quantitative easing um, in the middle of 2022. Uh, At the same time, there was a consensus that the Fed would not raise rates uh, this year, but would only start uh, to raise rates um, in 2023. So that was the situation if we look back four or five months. Um, In the December meeting of the Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Open Markets Committee, there was a change, and you know the guidance from the Fed then uh, was that the tapering of uh, quantitative easing would be accelerated, and that they would end their quantitative easing program um, at the end of March. And there was also guidance that they would raise rates in 2022 rather than 2023. And you know the consensus amongst the FOMC members. Uh, was that there would be three rate increases uh, this year. Um, If we look at the situation today, um, we have the Fed meeting uh, this week. I think the the, the ground has shifted further. And I think the reason for that is it follows on from a number of statements from Fed governors, and most notably the presentation that uh, Jay Powell gave to the Senate Banking Committee earlier in January where he basically said that inflation was higher than they thought. He was concerned about the change in inflationary expectations, which obviously has deteriorated. And therefore, you know, he said very clearly that you know, the quantitative easing program would end in March and that thereafter uh, the Fed would start to reduce its balance sheet. So you know, we, uh, we move from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening and they would reduce their balance sheet by maturing assets on their balance sheet would not the proceeds from those maturing assets would not be reinvested so it's a natural reduction in their balance sheet so i think this the discussion amongst investors now is well sort of how fast will quantitative tapering uh, take place 
you know, it's entirely possible that we could see the Fed balance sheet, you know, down by uh, the end of the third quarter by sort of potentially sort of 300 to, uh, to 500 billion US dollars. Um, I think what is also very clear from the Fed is that, you know, whether it's Powell or a number of other Fed governors, uh, you know, they have given a very clear outlook for three, potentially four uh, interest rate increases this year. So you know, if it's four interest rate increases, that would take us to a Fed funds rate of one percent to one and a quarter percent. There is some discussion in the markets, which I think is actually very relevant, um, that at the March meeting, rather than raising interest rates by uh, a quarter of a percent, 25 basis points, they actually could raise interest rates by 50 basis points and then at subsequent meetings increase rates you know by the more conventional 25 basis points and i think given the urgency in dealing with inflationary expectations and the very good index there um, is the university of michigan inflation expectations index and that one year index is now at 4.9% ie that those surveyed by the University of Michigan are assuming that inflation will stay close to 5% for the whole of this year. So that is obviously a very undesirable outcome. Um, I think the other factor, one just has to note that headline inflation um, is currently running at uh, 7% uh, for consumer price increases. So there is some urgency for the Fed to deal with uh, this deterioration in inflation and inflationary expectations. And therefore, I think that increasingly investors are starting to focus on the probability of a 50 basis points increase in March. But then as the economy cools down in the second half of this year, and you know, we, for the year as a whole, I think it's now increasingly unlikely that we will get 4% plus growth and we could end up you know, with 35 to 4% growth. And then in the second half of the year, we could see, um, and I think this is the central case, uh, you know, we could see uh, inflation pressures start to ease off as the economy cools down. And also, as COVID-related disruption starts to become less influential in markets. So, you know, as supply chain disruption ends, as labour markets normalise, could see, I think, inflation, and in, let's say by the third quarter of this year, come down to uh, you know three percent. Now that's still above the Fed target of two percent, but it means that the sort of direction of uh, in change in inflation is more favourable and more consistent with uh, Fed targets. So I'm personally quite sympathetic to the idea that in March you get a shock move of fifty basis points. And that thereafter, you possibly have for the rest of the year, two further rate increases and you know, 25 basis points each. So again, taking us to you know, 1% to 1.25% by the end of this year. Now, to put that in context, that is still a negative real rate, because if we have inflation in the uh, second half of this year running at 3% and interest rates still at 1%, uh, you know, that is still a negative real Fed funds rate of, uh, of close to 2%. So, you know, the, the, you could argue that the Fed funds rate is still too low relative to inflation. I think that, however, if we look into 2023 with US growth possibly slowing to less than 2.5% and inflation 
in 2023, probably down to two and a half percent. I think the case for the Fed taking more robust action now and then moving slowly in the second half of the year is probably the most likely outlook for monetary policy in America. And um, Bob, last time we, we discussed, there was a question whether, um, or maybe like a couple uh, months ago, there was a question, especially um, for the Bank of England, right? Um, whether raising rates would be a proper instrument Uh, given that a lot of the inflation comes from disruption of supply chain because of um, uh, COVID-19. Mm. Um, so I guess the question is, um, is it an efficient tool at this stage for the Fed to do that? And uh, which, which I think uh, um, embedded the question of the nature of the inflation. Are you saying inflation now uh, quickening up to salaries um, and a diffusion in inflation Um, be, beyond those temporary issues of supply chain disruption. Yeah, I think here we've actually got a very clear distinction between the US, the UK, Europe and Asia. And if one looks at the data in the Eurozone um, and Asia, uh, there is actually very little wage push inflation. So, you know, as a result, I think that, you know, the probability of inflation peaking earlier in the Eurozone and Asia, that is much higher uh, than, you know, when will inflation peak uh, in the US and the UK, where, you know, wage pressure has built up. And that is particularly, I think, in the States and the UK, due to labor market disruption, which is partly COVID related. Um, but also, you know, one has to recognize that, um, You know, growth has picked up very strongly, both in the US and the UK. So it's a combination of cost push plus demand pull. Uh, and as I say, that's not the case in the Eurozone or Asia. But, but coming back to uh, the States, you know, the big challenge uh, for the Federal Reserve is that if we are right and the economy starts to cool down and the growth this year is, let's say, three and a half to four percent and growth next year, Know, is plus or minus two and a half percent. You know, one has to be sort of really rather careful in how you manage inflation expectations. And that's why I think there is a case for the Fed to act more robustly, i.e. a larger interest rate increase sooner rather than later, and then go on pause. Now, the other uh, argument is obviously that they're, they're not just going to be raising interest rates, they're also going to be reversing quantitative easing. And you know, to put that in context, if we go back to the end of 2019, pre-pandemic, the Fed balance sheet uh, was just over four trillion US dollars. The Fed balance sheet today is close to nine trillion US dollars. So we've had this huge infusion of liquidity into markets. And you know, clearly the Fed has to be careful on the pace with which uh, they take away that liquidity. But I think a process of letting existing assets mature and not replacing them is probably the most prudent policy. And uh, do you think that the Fed acting in a way um, uh, helps over central bank because the, um, uh, the Fed is doing uh, part of the job for them? Um, or, or are you seeing that actually it, it pushes over central banks to um, actually do more? Or they simply don't care about the interaction with the Fed and they just look at their market and act according to their market. Well, what is going on, for instance, at the level of the ECB and the, the Bank of England? Well, again, I think you know, the big theme is one of central bank divergence. So whereas 
in 2020 uh, and for most of 2021, uh, we had central bank convergence, i.e. they were all easing monetary policy really quite aggressively. And then in 2021, you know, that, that aggressive easing in monetary policy obviously uh, moderated. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment is the situation of the ECB is you've had a number of statements from ECB governing council members, and most notably from Mrs. Lagarde, uh, reiterating that they think it is premature to raise interest rates. Um, now, the market doesn't agree with them, because if you look at the futures markets, the futures markets are discounting an increase, admittedly just one increase by the ECB uh, later in the year. September is the, the, the central case if you look at futures markets. But I think the, sort of the message from the ECB is that you know, growth numbers, albeit you know, fourth quarter growth numbers, were not good and the German economy actually slightly contracted. But uh, if we look at uh, 2022, the central case uh, is that eurozone growth will exceed 4%. And certainly, you know, the growth momentum there seems to be quite positive. You know, we're not going to get 5% plus growth, but... Uh, I think 4% growth this year, followed by potentially sort of two and a half, three percent growth in 2023. But the critical question is, is Eurozone inflation peaking? Uh, and actually, if you look at the data, uh, you know, obviously the data for November and December were worrying. You know, we had headline Eurozone uh, CPI at um, at 5%. But I think there is quite a lot of underlying evidence that says that sort of February, March, we could see inflation peak in the Eurozone. And you know, whereas inflation in the States, I think, will only come down slowly. And you know, potentially, as I mentioned, 4% by the middle of the year, 3% in the second half of the year uh, in the Eurozone, and particularly given that wage growth is actually still quite subdued, we could see inflation back down to 2.5% by the middle of this year uh, and evidence emerging. That, as I mentioned, that sort of March, April, that uh, there will be clearer evidence of inflation peaking. Now, what the ECB is doing um, is that it's changing um, its asset purchase program. Uh, the PEP, the Pandemic Emergency Program, will end in March, but you know, the ECB will still be doing um, asset purchases, um, and those will progressively decrease over the year, so that by the fourth quarter, the ECB plans just to do asset purchases of only 20 billion euros a month. So whereas at the Fed, the discussion is quantitative easing changing to quantitative tightening, here in the ECB, you know, it, the outlook at the moment is no increase in interest rates. Uh, my own view is the market is probably right. We will get a rate increase later in the year. But, you know, the pace of asset purchases will slow, but we still have quantitative easing. I think you know, one final comment to make about the ECB is you actually could argue that we actually have quite a benign situation at the moment of you know, 4 to 4% plus growth with inflation peaking and coming down to, let's say, 2.5% by the middle of the year um, is really quite a sort of favourable position. Now, that obviously, you wouldn't make that statement last month or this month where you know, the inflation numbers are elevated. But as we go into the second quarter in the middle of the year, you know, we will have, I think, quite a benign scenario for the Eurozone.
And uh, now looking at uh, the the Bank of England, um, I think I've read a headline that they signaled that they they would do more in the, um, uh, regarding rates. Um, what is the specific dynamic in the UK? Um, well, they raised rates at their last meeting. So the base rate, which is the key rate for the Bank of England, uh, went from 10 basis points to 25 basis points. The Bank of England, rather like the Fed, faces a key challenge, which is that inflation is high and in the short term probably going higher. And inflation at the moment at 5.4 percent, you know, February and March, that could easily be 6 percent. But conversely, you know, consumption is falling. And if you look at the sort of the last consumer confidence index and also the last retail sales numbers, uh, consumption has declined. And it's not. I think one thing that's actually relevant across most economies is that if we go back one year, consumption was weak because of COVID. Uh, now, consumption is weak, uh, not because of COVID, but uh, because real incomes are being squeezed by higher inflation. Um, and that is particularly the case in the UK, uh, given the pricing of energy to uh, consumers. And you know what we've seen in energy markets, obviously, has been a very large jump in prices. And now that is being translated into consumers' energy bills. So a combination of high inflation, high energy costs. Uh, here in the UK, there is a, an argument going on this week about whether to implement tax increases to cover social care. Um, and obviously interest rates, uh, in, it comes back to the sort of the discussion about reining in inflation expectations. So inflation expectations have clearly increased in the UK. That warrants an increase in interest rates. But again, the Bank of England, I think, needs to be careful uh, because it doesn't want to cause too much of a deceleration in the economy. Now, Although the consumer numbers are looking weak, activity numbers are still holding up very strongly. And as COVID restrictions get removed, uh, the service sector will obviously rebound. So I think in the first quarter of this year, 6% inflation, a recovery post-COVID in growth and in activity numbers, uh, argues for the Bank of England probably to move at least twice on interest rates. So that would take us to 75 basis points. Um, but then as the economy slows down towards the end of the year, um, I think the Bank of England, rather like the Fed, will be on hold um, because we'll have a slowing economy. And then eventually, I think we'll see lower inflation. So you know, like the Fed, we could easily see end of this year, UK inflation down you know, to 4% or less. So that would say the bank, any action by the Bank of England should be in the near term. And maybe to complete the panorama, what are you seeing uh, in, in Asia, in China and in Japan? Well, when I talk about um, sort of central bank divergence, um, one that obviously stands out is the People's Bank of China. And uh, the People's Bank of China uh, have uh, cut their short term interest rate. Uh, they've also cut their longer term, their five year benchmark, which is relevant for the housing market. They have reduced the reserve requirements uh, that the banks have to, uh, to post, thereby injecting further liquidity into the system. So we've seen quite an aggressive easing in monetary policy by PBOC, and I think that that will continue. And you know, the background uh, for that change in stance and that different stance from the Fed or uh, the Bank of England, I think, is very clear, which is that 
Growth in China has slowed. You know, it's come out at less than 5%. Ideally, they want 5% growth. There are also some problems in the real estate market. And you know, a number of defaults have occurred, the largest, obviously, of which is Evergrande with uh, total debt to the equivalent of 300 billion US dollars. But they wanted to minimize contagion risk from the real estate market. And then I think you know, two other factors are that inflation in China, in contrast to elsewhere, is actually very moderate. Inflation is less than 2%. Um, I think it may pick up, uh, but I think it'll only pick up to perhaps 2.5%. So we haven't got the inflation pressures in China that we have elsewhere. Um, I think a final factor is the Chinese renminbi in the view of the People's Bank of China has been too strong. And, you know, ideally, they would like it back uh, to 6.4 against the US dollar. Uh, because of capital flows, private sector capital flows, you know, it's strengthened to 6.35. Chinese export growth is very strong. Last year, Chinese exports grew by over 20% year on year. But having said that, you know, they want to maintain that export growth. And, you know, get against a background of sort of low-ish inflation, um, but the big challenge in China is uh, is to maintain growth. And the policy objective is you know, 5% growth, uh, and that requires an easing in monetary policy. And we're also seeing fiscal measures in China being eased. Um, elsewhere in Asia, you know, a number of um, countries have uh, raised rates, but it, where they have done that, it's been very moderate indeed. And the Bank of Japan is very slowly taking away uh, some of the liquidity in the market. So, for example, it's stopped buying corporate bonds, it's stopped buying Japanese equity ETFs. Um, but the move by the Bank of Japan is very slow. So, again, you know, in contrast to you know what's happening in America with the Fed. And now looking at maybe at global figures for, for growth, I saw that the um, uh, IMF was supposed to... Uh, publish uh, their figures for 2022 updated ones um, and they postpone it to tomorrow yes um, what do you what do you expect do you expect uh, for the provisions to be slightly downgraded because of uh, maybe um, the omicron disruption um, what, what is your what what should we uh, expect in terms of like global figure for 2022 well you, you had a speech at the world economic forum which obviously was uh, virtual again this year uh, but you had a speech by the head of um, the IMF last week where she said very clearly that, you know, when they do publish their uh, forecasts for 2022 and 2023, uh, that there will be some downward revisions in the growth outlook. And, you know, that comes back to what we were saying earlier, which is that I think now for this year, it is appropriate to forecast US growth of 35 to 4%, rather than 4% plus. Um, and that's less the, you know, the Omicron or COVID factor, uh, but more the dulling of consumption uh, because of higher inflation. And in the case of the states, you know, the challenge that the Biden government are having passing, you know, their what they call build back better bill or the infrastructure and climate change and social welfare spending. And, you know, originally, um, you know, that was going to be two billion plus and you know now the components of the bill are going to be broken up and i think in the first half of this year at best we're going to see an expansion of fiscal policy of you know a trillion 
So that's been you know, cut back very significantly indeed. So that's one factor in, in lower US growth. In the case of the Eurozone, uh, the growth momentum, I think, is, uh, is still there. And you know, any discussion of a growth slowdown, I think, is a discussion for the end of this year, beginning of 2023. And you know, after a rather weak fourth quarter in 2021, I think Europe is now starting to rebuild growth momentum. So Eurozone growth of sort of four to 4.5%. Uh, the UK has got downside risks, um, and that's mainly around the consumer. So the consumer is being squeezed. So I think clearly downside risks there. Uh, China, downside risks are related to the real estate sector. Um, but we're seeing really quite aggressive policy action. So I think that you know, the IMF will come out uh, with a Chinese forecast of sort of close to 5% or potentially slightly higher. Uh, and the one I think that's going to surprise, well, there are two areas which um, I think are going to be surprisingly positive, which is you know, Japan, where I think there will be an upward revision to growth. And you know, that upward revision could well be you know, to 3% plus, whereby... Previously, the IMF and the market consensus was, was a Japanese growth of only 2.5%. I think just the final area, just to note, is the ASEAN 5, i.e. Southeast Asia, where you know, post-COVID, which has hurt some economies really quite hard, such as uh, Singapore, you know, we are now seeing very good positive momentum. Um, and as a result, you know, the ASEAN 5, I think one could easily see 5 to 6% growth. So... Those are going to be the, I think, the areas of strong growth. I think a, a final comment is India, uh, where the numbers look very positive at the moment, uh, really across all sectors, uh, with a rebound in the Indian economy. And we could easily see you know, Indian growth come out um, you know, between 6 and 7% for the calendar year 2022. India is slightly confusing because they operate on a fiscal year. Um, so if you're comparing like with like, uh, one has to adjust the numbers to make it a calendar year 2022. Uh, because if you're looking at a fiscal year versus a calendar year, you then confuse the picture. Thank you, Bob. I mean, you've, you've described a very complex macroeconomic background uh, for investors to, to navigate. Um, how do you see um, uh, investor positioning uh, themselves at the moment? Um, uh, can we learn anything from um, what we saw last month in the, in the markets? What is your um, feeling about is inflation again and forever more uh, the focus for, for people to have uh, inflation-proof portfolios? I would be curious to have your views and also if you can describe a bit what we saw recently um, um, in the last month in the in yeah. different markets. Well, I think the first point to make is that until the last few days, we've seen quite a big jump in bond yields. So, you know, at one stage, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield got close to 1.9%. Uh, and if you go back to, you know, let's say the middle of December prior to the Christmas holiday period, you know, 10-year U.S. Treasury yields were sort of trading at around 1.35%. That resulted in quite a significant sell-off in sectors which are sensitive to interest rate changes. So on the negative side, that's the tech sector. And you know, the tech sector is very sensitive to increases in bond yields. So you know, that's why over the last month, you know, we have seen the NASDAQ composite down close to 10%. Uh, conversely, rising interest rates are very good for the banking sector, the insurance sector, 
uh, and the utilities sectors. So, you know, there you've seen much less damage. Uh, as, you know, the tech sector sold off, uh, you know, that's had a contagion effect on all equity markets um, across the world. And, you know, therefore, you know, we've seen uh, a decline, a less pronounced decline, but still a decline over the last month of around 5% in the S&P. And, you know, we've seen declines, but uh, the quantum has been much less in Europe. So, you know, the UK and uh, the Eurozone equity markets have um, outperformed uh, the US, where we've seen uh, reasonably good performance um, actually has been in some of the Asian markets, you know, such as uh, India, which although India, the market is very expensive, uh, it's still generated positive returns. And then a number of uh, other Asian markets have had positive returns, you know, such as Taiwan, Thailand, and, uh, and Singapore, which comes back to my earlier observation about sort of the ACN5 and the fact that you know, inflation is less of a problem uh, in Asia and the whole monetary stance in Asia, in contrast to the states in Asia, the monetary stance is easier rather than, uh, than tighter. So, you know, the sequence of events, I think, has been reasonably clear. In the States, interest rate expectations have changed radically. That resulted in the bond market sell-off. That resulted uh, in an equity market sell-off led by the NASDAQ. Um, bond markets around the world, uh, ex-Asia, uh, have seen uh, interest rate or yield increases. So, you know, 10-year bonds have moved back temporarily into positive territory. Uh, and I think it's worth remembering that, you know, in first half of 2021, 10-year bond yields were sort of minus 50, minus 60 basis points. So uh, moving back, albeit temporarily, into positive territory, um, you know, is a very significant market event in Europe. Um, and that clearly has had a sort of negative effect on, on European markets. But the main damage has actually been in those areas which were interest rate sensitive and also very expensive um, in, the, in the US market. Uh, I think it's worth noting, apart from the tech sector, a number of other areas in the states where arguably we had market bubbles um, have also corrected quite significantly. So, you know, the special purpose acquisition uh, sector, uh, SPACs, um, have corrected significantly. So that's been the sort of sequence of events so far in January. Um, you know, bond yields now are stabilizing. And I think, you know, we are in a situation, I think, where, you know, markets are now starting to largely discount uh, the probable path of uh, changes by the Federal Reserve. So if the news is fully discounted, then I would argue that uh, you know the, the risk of a further major sell-off um, is low. Now that comes with one caveat, uh, and that one caveat is obviously geopolitical risks. But to come back to your question, how are investors positioned? Uh, I think in January we've clearly seen what we like to call risk-off action, um, and investors have been, you know, moving into more defensive sectors. I think there has been a clear adjustment in the overweight US position versus the rest of the world. So I think funds have been moving back into Europe and, uh, and Asian markets. But we're very much a focus on growth related sectors such as um, industrials, energy, which is a subject we need to discuss. And in certain markets, um, you know, consumer discretionary. Um, and that has actually been one factor in, um, in Europe as well. 
And I think actually it's sort of, you know, one shouldn't be sort of too gloomy on market action because if we're right and you know, the impact of uh, COVID starts to become less influential towards the end of the first quarter of this year, uh, then I think it is reasonably clear that we will see an improvement in consumer confidence and in the service sector and less disruption to supply chains and less disruption to labor markets. Well, you, you mentioned uh, geopolitical risk, and I have a feeling there's, there's so much going on on the, the economic front that it's been uh, sidelined at the moment by, by investors. And but there was also like very important ramification with like the energy market, uh, so it's clearly a very important issue. Um, is it uh, how is it considered by investors at this stage, and can they do anything? Are they doing anything about it? Well, I think the first point on geopolitics um, is let's not worry about Asian geopolitics at the moment. And although tension between China and Taiwan obviously remains elevated and will remain elevated, um, I think the focus of uh, the Chinese authorities in the short term is to have a successful uh, Winter Olympics um, and then for 2022, uh, to have a very successful National Congress meeting at the end of the year. So I think that 2022 is probably a year where Chinese pressure on Taiwan will stay elevated, but it's not going to escalate further. So I think that's going to be less of an issue for investors. Uh, the next sort of geopolitical tension point is obviously the Iranian uh, nuclear negotiations. They don't seem to be going at all well. And frankly, I don't think we're going to see much progress. But, you know, Iran has major economic problems at the moment, high inflation, high unemployment. It's also, you know, countries that Iran has supported, like Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, are in, in various stages of economic collapse. So, you know, the nuclear discussions with, with Iran, I think, remain troublesome, but uh, I don't see escalation there. Where obviously there is a major point of pressure at the moment is what's happening in Ukraine. I think it's reasonably clear as to what the Putin government wants to achieve, which is to have Ukraine more in the sphere of influence of Russia, rather like Belarus. You could argue that uh, Russia's recent action in Kazakhstan you know, demonstrates their policy of wanting to have former Soviet Union states in their sphere of influence. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, I think that's actually going to be very difficult to achieve. And, you know, an outright invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, you know, I think, you know, it, it could prove sort of, you know, long term and very, very difficult for the Russians to take over Ukraine and actually hold it. Um, so I think the likely scenario is... Um, some give and take between NATO and the Russians. I think you could see more Russian pressure on Ukraine. Ideally, they would like to replace the current government with a government which is more sympathetic to Moscow. But coming back to how is that relevant to energy markets? And you know, the key factor is obviously gas. Uh, gas prices in Europe uh, went to a record peak last October. Uh, that was a um, 180 euros per megawatt hour. They're now down to about 80 euros per megawatt hour, largely because of increased supply from alternative energy such as wind, but most notably increased deliveries of uh, LNG from the States and the Middle East. 
But, you know, Russian supplies of gas through the pipelines from Russia to Europe and primarily to Germany um, are running at very low levels. So, you know, Russian gas supplies are low. Um, some people are arguing that Russia's policy is to run those low supplies as a, you know, a, a pressure tool uh, on Europe. Uh, and that may or may not be the case, but certainly the situation remains tense. And you know, part of that is that uh, energy prices will remain high. And you've seen contagion uh, effects with uh, North Sea Brent trading at one stage up to $90 per barrel. Uh, that's now eased off a little bit. But I think the overall theme for the next few months is that energy prices stay high. And that's why, you know, inflation, inflation X energy, I think, you know, is, is starting to peak in at least in, in Europe and Asia. Um, but headline inflation numbers obviously are going to be distorted by high energy prices. Thanks, Bob. Uh, one last technical question. How much uh, share um, energy in the, the overall inflation figures uh, at, uh, at, at European level? Is it like 5%, 10%? I would, the answer is I need to check that, but I would say it is certainly 10% plus. And um, obviously mm. it is particularly relevant in the Northern Hemisphere winter when we are consuming much more energy. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you look, you know, at, well, just take Brent, um, you know, Brent, you know, in April 2020, in fact, the price went temporarily negative. Um, and now, you know, we're plus 90. So, you know, we've seen a massive change in energy prices. Okay, thanks. Thanks for the, um, the very complete overview, um, Bob. And uh, I'm sure it would indeed uh, be a short term and a long term um, uh, issue energy prices uh, in uh, the transition we, we, we're trying to. Uh, engage um, and uh, so that uh, will definitely be a, a theme for uh, the short and long term uh, and we'll be um, you know discussing this uh, in the upcoming uh, monthly market update podcast thanks for listening and um, we'll be uh, speaking very soon again thank you thank you for listening for more icma podcasts and further information on capital markets please visit our website icmagroup.org